We are live. My name is Sebastien Couture, and this is The Interop. This is a show where we dive deep into the decentralized economic networks that make up the interchain. I'm here today with Fabian Reva, who is the CEO and co-founder of Kive. Kive is a decentralized data lake protocol. We're going to get into all of that and understand what it means, uh, how it integrates with the Cosmos ecosystem and beyond. And also, we're going to dive deep into Arweave. Hi, Fabian. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. We have quite some, some agenda for today, I see. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting because, I mean, like, Arweave is something that I kind of, you know, passively pay attention to. I've got lots of friends who are, like, just all about Arweave. We also have some content here on the show before about Arweave, but, um, yeah, I'm still, like, struggling to understand how it all fits into Cosmos. I think you guys are probably the project that, you know, are in the Cosmos, but are also, like, mostly uh, close to Arweave. Uh, before we get started, though, if you like the videos that we're producing, if you like this content, please make sure to subscribe, hit the like button, hit the notification bell, because we usually do live streams every Thursday around this time. So yeah, uh, tell me a bit about your background and you know how you came to be working on uh, on Kive. Absolutely, it was it's a very organic story, so to say. So I'm a software developer, um, and I was just working as a freelancer. Um, and then got invited by the uh, SAP, which is a big German um, development company. I think it's pretty international, actually. It's, I don't know. But uh, so they invited me over for a hackathon. And this was the first time I was in contact with, with crypto. Like some dude introduced me there. I don't know how he got into crypto, but um, that's that. And we said, you know what, for this hackathon, let's build our own um, ERC20 token. This was like 2019. Yeah, 2019. Um, we're like, okay, cool. Two hours later, we had an ERC20 token. We're like, okay. It's a three-day hackathon. What are we going to do with it now, right? Like, hmm, okay. And so we looked a bit deeper into all the, the crypto stuff, but we couldn't really see use case and so on. And then I was chatting to the guy next to me, and he was an SAP intern, and he was working on the CLA Assistant. And the CLA Assistant is an open-source tool from the SAP used by, like, Amazon, PayPal, big enterprises, that they have the problem that when they have external developers um, doing contributions to their open source code that they have to then sign online um, an agreement, a contributor license agreement, CLA, that says that basically they're giving away the rights on the code that they are contributing to the project. And they were actually storing um, those signatures on like some small hard drive uh, sitting on the fridge in like the office department because it was like a work in progress tool for them. I hope it's fixed by now, but I guess this was what the dude was working on. Then I got back to the hotel and I was thinking about actually that's a perfect use case for blockchain, right? Like if I would store like the proof of signature there, then no one could ever say, oh, actually, no, I have never signed the CLA because it's all very happened on GitHub, right? I don't think it had any big legal substance. Obviously. So I felt there might be a cool like use case. And then the other two days of the hackathon, I developed that and always thought, well, nice proof of concept. It was deployed to well, Ethereum uh, testnet. Even back then, gas was already expensive. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that, that was my, my crypto journey. And then have you later... Uh, the dude from the SAP hit me up and said, hey, have a look at Arweave. It might be super cool for your signature use case. Basically, you can build a decentralized DocuSign. I was like, oh, actually, it's very cool because now what Arweave allows me compared to other blockchains is that I can upload much larger files. So I could actually you know, attach the real contract and then let this one basically be signed by my party or my counterparty or whatever. So that's, that's nice. So I reached out to Sam, the CEO of Arweave, um, to maybe just chat about him, what he thinks about it and so on. And then we actually both kind of got torn into this rabbit hole of actually like, how do we even know if an address is a real human? How do we even know if my counterpart is legit? Because it's very cryptic, right? It's not very user-friendly. I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting. And then this was my first ever like big crypto project. It's called Averify. Um, it's fully based on Arweave. And basically we are analyzing the Arweave traffic. And by this, they're able to compute a score for an address saying if it's most likely human or not. So think about it a bit like on-chain KYC, but it's not through an external like KYC provider. Um, and then this happened, this was then um, late 2020, very early 2021. Um, and I was reaching out on the Discord, was a community project, was, hey, does someone want to help me build this? And then John, uh, who's now the co-founder of Kaif, um, reached out to me and said, hey, actually, yeah, I can help you. Uh, I would love to work on this. I was like, awesome, that's great. So I met him on, on Discord and then we started working on our Verify, um, launched it in December, um, and actually quite some some good revenue on it. It was like a little tipping system, and this worked out super nicely. And then we were just browsing through Gitcoin one day and saw a bounty from Parity, that's a development company right behind Polkadot, um, 
and Aweave, and it was a shared bounty about bridging Polkadot data to Aweave. Seven and a half K or something. We're like, all right, that's easy, easy weekend money. Let's do it. So we did it and I got some amazing feedback for it. And then we're like, oh, actually, that's quite a system that, that we can scale now, right? This this archiving kind of solution. I can go much deeper into it maybe later why this is such a cool thing. Um, and then from there on, like Kaif was born, right? Like we started integrating more and more chains. Uh, the team got bigger and bigger. Um, I think now we're around 16 to 20 people now, now switched over to Cosmos and everything. Happy to talk about this, uh, this more in a minute. And uh, yeah, well, now I'm here, I would say. Uh, this is how the whole Kives thing happened and, and my backstory. Cool. And how long ago did you start working on Kive and sort of what's been the arc of, you know, the project? Like, I don't yeah. think you guys are live yet. You have an incentivized test net, but you're going to be live like shortly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, maybe let me just now step back and talk a bit about what Kive actually is. So with Kive, we are building a fully decentralized um, data lake. And this means basically that we are getting data from literally any data source, blockchains, off-chain data, financial data, whatever, into this data lake and then make this data accessible for developers. Right? Think about it as like an oracle on steroids. Um, so it's a little oracle for, for any type of data. Validating it, it's sure it's correct. And this idea fully started out um, on, on Arweave and working with Arweave smart contracts. Um, so they were pretty new back then and weren't production ready to the extent that we needed them. We needed like contract to contract calls that wasn't supported um, and so on. And in general, like just Solidity was more of a standard that we needed to, to work and to scale with. And uh, yeah, so we switched away from using a full-on Arweave stack to a uh, Solidity contract Arweave storage stack. So we're storing, and we still do, by the way, store all the data um, on Arweave and all the logic is handled by, or was handled by a smart contract. Then we realized, oh, actually also EVM also gives, doesn't give us the flexibility from a tech perspective, but because you always have to share um, your transactions, like the transaction space with other projects, right? It was bull market. So gas prices went up the roof. And we're like, oh no, this is not what we want. We want something where we have our own space and we are sure that like Kaif in itself stays economical. And this is when we looked at either, this was February then, February, 2022. So eight months ago. Um, we were like, okay, should we now switch to Cosmos or to Polkadot? Um, and we, us personally, we weren't big fans of the Polkadot like shared security um, system. And we thought, well, if we're going to build something that's independent, we want to have something truly independent, right? Um, and this is then how we decided to go with Cosmos. And no one on the team, no, neither Rust or Gold. So this was a pure decision of <laughs> kind of like the, the philosophy behind it. And this is, um, yeah, how, how that went. And then in April or something, we then released that we switched to Cosmos, deployed that, had the incentivized testing going on now for quite a while, 40,000 participants, absolutely insane. Um, yeah, and they're now really just, yeah, going towards mainnet in, in big, big steps and really very excited for it. And yeah, I really cannot wait to, to launch it. Um, so yeah, that's, I would say, the, the current status quo. Cool. Well, I, I'd like to talk about permanent storage. Um, because I, I think it's one of the most interesting use cases in crypto. So, you know, on Epicenter, we've interviewed like tons of projects over the years that wanted to do either decentralized storage or permanent storage. And I've always felt like this was the thing that got me kind of really excited about crypto um, in terms of non-DeFi use cases. And, you know, you know, I, I was really impressed by projects like Saya, even back in the day, like uh, store storage, you know, these projects. But then Arweave came along and they had this totally new um, model and this, this, this new kind of proposition of not just decentralized storage, but permanent storage. Um, I, I have yet to really have confidence, I think, in the tokenomics or fully understand the tokenomics to, to be able to have confidence in the fact that like this storage is actually permanent. Um, so you know, I have friends who you know, just kind of are big we fans and think it's super cool, but I'd like you to maybe explain in your view, like what what about Arweave makes it uh, so interesting and you know, how does it ensure its permanence? Because when you say permanence, like that's an, that you're talking in absolute terms here. You're really talking about like something that will exist forever. There, there's, you know, it's, it's not a binary thing uh, or it is, a, it is a binary it's thing. Binary it either it yeah. exists forever or it doesn't. And like to have absolute certainty about this permanence is, like a big statement. So yeah, yeah how, how do you describe how it works? And then 
also the tokenomics that make sure that this these this the storage remains permanent. Sure, sure. Happy to break it down because that's actually also like a big reason why Kaif exists, right? And I think also gives like a good baseline on like how Kaif really works. Basically, the problem you have right now on blockchains, like on the traditional ones, right? Ethereum, Solana, and so on, is that the pure incentive, the token incentive is set on block production, right? And this means, of course, that you only get rewards for actually creating blocks, but not for keeping the data. Um, and this is what's now happening, for example, to Solana is a famous example where a lot of nodes um, are pruning the data, meaning that they're leading it out of the database um, just because it's more flexible. And of course, you maximize your profit by investing, um, well, the least in um, the incentive to, to not store any data because they're really not incentivized to do that. Um, and then Arweave has the complete opposite. So Arweave is highly incentivized on um, well, data access and data accessibility, so to say, or data permanency. I really don't know what the correct like, term for that is, but basically the way they have designed the tokenomics is um, basically by, by saying, listen, we're gonna give you tokens for the exchange of data, right? And the more rare data is, the more tokens you're gonna get for discovering that and keeping this in your network, um, which is a very smart approach, right? And then they also say, listen, we're not a blockchain where every node has to have a full history. We're a block weave, that's the name, right? R weave, um, where actually one node can have as little data as it wants, but of course maximizes its profit by having all of the weave, like all of the data. Because right, then they can always retrieve any data, meaning that they get the most rewards for that. And I think if you understand this concept, then it makes more sense why you would say, okay, this is why it's permanent storage and more of a block weave and then, then a blockchain. Um, and the reason why it's permanent, that's then a more like in-depth design choice of Arweave. And actually, I'm a big fan of also challenging Arweave for permanent storage a bit and actually saying there is no need for every piece of data to be stored permanently, right? Accounting data is a very good example. I think 10 years in Germany, at least uh, where I'm from by law, it is mandatory. And then after that, you can absolutely discard it because why wasting like money basically um, on something that we don't need to pay for. And then Arweave has the easy thing just says, listen, you're just going to pay for 200 years of storage in advance, right? And they have the storage paradigm where they say, okay, the cost of storage is decreasing by, I think it's 30% every year, right? And of course, by this, uh, you can just draft a mathematical curve, right? And then you can follow this, you can compute how much you would have to pay for storage now in order for it to ensure that the node always has enough money to pay it for at least 200 years. That's how they, they how, how they justify the, the permanency. Yeah, with regards to the to the tokenomics then, so the, the idea is that you're incentivized as a node to store data that exists in scarce, uh, in sort of scarce amounts in the network. So if there's like data that is on Arweave that is not, um, you know, replicated to some to some factor, yeah. uh, there's going to be an incentive for you to pick up that data and replicate it on your node. Um, the 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 thing I think that with Arweave that I've always had a, a hard time kind of grasping and, and coping with is, is this idea that, that you mentioned that like all data should be stored forever. And as far as I understand it, or at least when I was, you know, when we interviewed Sam on Epicenter, I think like a year and a half or two years ago, there wasn't a way on Arweave to effectively delete information. Like all information on Arweave was to remain permanent forever. Is that still the case? And how, how then do you deal with this idea that like, not everything needs to be stored forever because like if you go to some extreme like you can go to extreme like very granular kind of data storage um policies for any sort of application right and you can like store every single you know finite piece of transition transitional information uh in state change and then you just have like an infinitely large data set yeah exactly so actually um I don't think there is a way on our weave to ensure it's not permanent, right? Um, I think that's actually something where other storage solutions kind of might might, dare, might have their unique selling point, right? And I think it's a big question of which one's actually winning over the other, right? Um, and also, like, I mean, for Kaif, um, actually, we are storage backend agnostics, what we like to say, meaning that it is possible for those storage pools that are like relaying the data, uh, they can relay it to other backends. So they don't have to use our weave, they can use like 
Falcon IPFS, um, Makina or Near or whatever, right? Um, we just as a team, I mean, because we came out of our we right? that's our biggest expertise. And so, of course, we are staying on there and pushing that. But we do absolutely see like a viable point that, that it's not worth it for every piece of data to be stored um, well permanently, right? Um, and also, there comes also a big, a lot of responsibility from an eth ethnic, ethic, ethical <laughs> point of view for storing data permanently, right? Because what might be okay now might not be okay in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, yeah. who knows, right? Yeah. Permanent means a lot, like, yeah. right? And, and coming from Germany, like, you know, you're well aware of like this whole right to be forgotten, uh, yeah. you know, a regulation that uh, I think was um, targeting Google, you know, several years ago and is still very much in the in the say German mindset, right? That like you no know, information should be permanent. A lot of people still pay in cash in Germany and uh, and for, you know, for reasons that are very cultural. And so, yeah, there, there is, there is, I think also like cultural ramifications to this. Um, okay. So, so there, so are we still source everything in forever? Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So I, I know there is, I don't know if, if it is in place by now, but I know that in theory nodes can agree on uh, not storing any um, transactions anymore. So let's say you upload some illegal files to Arweave, right? The nodes yeah. could agree on excluding these transactions from the data exchange. And then yeah. over time, you know, the data would extinct there. But yeah. then my big like thesis on this is, is if it's illegal data, it's usually always has some high value attached to it, right? Yeah. Um, then there might be a subnet of Arweave or a sub fork of Arweave or something where you don't where they just don't use this blacklist yeah right? so you would keep this data around it would be much rarer to find but actually then you could write algorithms to find it like I, you could I, also I, encrypt the data yeah right well, encrypting data is this one big problem in general right like if it's encrypted yeah whatever you cannot do anything against it right but if it would be open data then i would guess even then like something would in that region would form right so it's it's questionable on how this how this works yeah. How, how does Arweave deal with spam then? Because like, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you also have to pay to post data on Arweave, but like if you had some, like, I don't know what the, what the uh, capacity of Arweave is currently, but let's say you had like some state actor that just wanted to spam Arweave for whatever reason um, and had, you know, unlimited money. I mean, this is the same, I think with like, you know, Bitcoin or any other sort of, you know, like, yeah, but decentralized network that has some amount of scaling issues. Um, you know, you could just spam Arweave and just post like tons and tons of data to it, making it practically unusable and maybe even economically unfeasible over time. Yeah, I, I can tell you, it was us. It, it was Kaif in in the early days that did this. Like Kaif, like we outscaled Arweave um, at, at at one day. And I remember, like, okay. uh, um, I remember a message from Sam when we were in development. Coffee text like, "Hey guys, I think you guys just killed our gateway." And we're like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and so we're like, okay, no worries. Um, and then basically, so they did some optimization, of course, right? Um, we did some optimization uh, as well. And then um, Bundler um, came along. Bundler came along in the NFT app from Josh. We are very close with um, with him. Um, and what Bundler is, I'm happy to give a quick TLDR. It's basically um, like a scaling service for Arweave. So what yeah. they do, they, they take all your, your data um, but with foreign data, like basically it's like a roll-up for, for Arweave data. They take all the data from others and they just ensure you that at one point in time it's settled on Arweave. Um, and this really takes off some load and now they drive actually 95%, I think, of Arweave's traffic, wow. um, which, is, which is crazy. And on the Kive side, we've dealt with this by also bundling the data um, custom, like basically on our side. So we're pushing much less data to Arweave than we did in the early days. Especially the NFT, I really took down Arweave for a while. But it was never a network. It was always the gateway, as far as I'm aware, um, mm. which is the indexing service on top of Arweave. And this was the one that uh, yeah, didn't, didn't like all that traffic, as, as far as I'm aware. So, so before we get into to Kive, I, I do want to talk about Arweave smart contracts briefly. Yes. Yeah, like, how does that work? And how is it different from, say, the paradigm of smart contracts that we're used to with Ethereum or like Cosm, Wasm, like these kind of on-chain uh, state transition yeah. Um, contracts. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I know. I, I must openly uh, admit now, I don't think I ever did, that I'm not a, not a big fan of the Arweave smart contracts. Um, because of the way the Arweave smart contracts are designed, 
um, it's called client side um, execution, right? Which means that there is, you have the transaction happening, like I'm transferring, right, 10 tokens to you, you're transferring 10 tokens to me. And then usually in a normal network, like a normal network in on Ethereum, right? For example, the nodes, they would do the updating state calculation, right? And always store in the latest state. So it's fast and easy to access. Um, and you find consensus about it, right? While, and this is now the big problem on Arweave, um, your client does it. Meaning that client is, well, your computer, right? So your computer actually has to download all of the transaction that, that have happened. And for 10 transactions, it's a problem. But for a million or a billion, it gets quite exhaustive right and then you have to compute it basically to the latest state which also takes some time and computation always takes some time and even the the fast implementation would slow it down for an indefinitely uh, large right number of transactions um and that's actually one of the reasons why we, why we switched away from it um, and the other reason being that there is no consensus on a state so if if my client may, might be corrupted or i might not read some data and i end up with, I don't know, I have 100 tokens, but on your side it says 101 tokens, who's correct, right? We don't know. Yeah. Right? I mean, you'd have to go back and, like, someone would have to go back and look at all the state transitions that have been posted to Darweave, and then I guess that would be the mm -hmm. source of truth. Yeah, but but it gets even more, uh, well, funnier, because then, well, you had different teams developing different clients, and uh, the clients had different um, ways of interpreting um, some data, and this mm -hmm. really completely demolished the state. So like one, one story, my favorite story there is actually that we were using the native SmartWeave client and then the Redstone team was building their client. Um, and basically what happened then is that we were executing the exact same contract with the Redstone client, but it got a completely different result, completely different. We're like, okay, why did this happen? And we mm. invest, investigated and we found out that very early on um, um, an investor unlock failed on either our or on the other client. And this investor unlock, of course, right, then uh, influenced a weight on the vote on the governance that was changing the parameters of the network. So it's really like this complete chaos after this, right? Because you have different parameters, suddenly you have different weight shifts and so on. And it get, just got worse and worse and worse, right? Yeah. How do you um, unbundle that? <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah. well, and then, well then, then the solution from the Redstone team is, and, uh, is to build this like Warp, uh, I think they also have the product called Warp, right? It's like their smart contract network. Yeah. But to be honest, it's, it is pretty centralized, um, if not basically centralized because they have a caching service and then it's not trustless anymore, right? Like how can I trust someone team's cache that's not like the blockchain spirit and not how it should, should work, right? Um, and that's actually one of many reasons why, why we switched away. Another one is also I think that a lot of people have to keep in mind is this, it's called foreign call protocols actually, it was a brainstorming idea by Sam, uh, Tate, and John, my, my, our co-founder, which is that, okay, how can we make contract-to-contract -contract calls possible? Um, and because everything is stateless, um, you have to do this weird concept where basically, um, if I would like to interact with you, right, I would to basically have to hold up a sign on my side saying, hey, if you read this, please execute this on your end, right? And then you would read this and say, okay, Fabian says I don't need to execute this. But then you have two problems. One is the Turing problem. That means that you don't know if I may, if I might make you run into an infinite loop, right? And then imagine you have billions of transactions in and suddenly there's some bug and I'm able to call like an exploit, call an infinite loop on your side and the contract is broken forever. There's no yeah. way to fix it, right? It's broken forever, which is super, super dangerous. And that's the reason why ETH introduced gas, right? To solve the Turing problem because they said, listen, at some amount of computation, we're gonna abort it and don't make the transaction count because something is super off here, right? Arweave doesn't have this and they, it's a bit of a, yeah, they say it's, it's gasless, but actually it's dangerous that it's gasless in my, my personal opinion, right? Um, and then the other problem with that is you have an ever-growing state because me on my side, I don't know when you have read the message you are supposed to read because it's stateless, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I basically, I, I always have like to duplicate myself and create a new Fabian holding up a sign. Hey, next time do this. Hey, next time do this. And this just explodes the state. And now imagine like lots of smart contracts interacting with each other and you have suddenly no clue what's going on. It's just not scalable at all. Are, are you familiar with Urbit at all? Uh, no, what's that? Well, <laughs> uh, so yeah, Urbit is this, um, is this kind of, 
decentralized compute system. Um, I wouldn't know how to describe it. Okay. Uh, my, my co-founder at Epicenter is a big fan of it. And, and, um, and basically everybody has kind of like their own computer, right? Like their own kind of virtual machine. And then things settle when you communicate with others in this peer-to-peer -peer network. So I don't know if you're familiar with Secure Scuttlebutt. Nope. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is like, this is like deep in the weeds kind of stuff. Oh, geez, I need to like stop pressing my chair. Um, yeah. But yeah, basically it's kind of like this stateless compute uh, thing where there isn't actually a network. There's just like kind of data structures that settle with other data structures. Okay. I'm butchering this explanation, but it sounds kind of similar. I, yeah. I need to do a little more research about Urbit, but um, so yeah, what's, what's the, um, What's the interplay and the interaction between, say, like, like our weave and the Cosmos ecosystem? And, you know, because I think, you know, being in the Cosmos ecosystem, I think there's, I don't know of very many projects that are building on our weave or leveraging our weave. I know like the Redstone team are doing some stuff with IBC and maybe the Cosmos SDK, but there's not a whole lot of overlap between those two ecosystems, I think. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but what what is the the kind of play here and how can like the cosmos ecosystem like leverage our weave to to its benefit do you think yeah i think i think we're getting more and more into this like modular um tech stack right where you have some technology it's in our case right where the logic well cosmos is very suited for like token logics and logics in general so we use this for that our weave is very suited for storage so we use that and actually what's very crucial is that the bridge in between is important and that's basically what kive is right um, and for example, I, I would never recommend actually anyone else immediately integrating with Arweave um, if not your whole system is completely trustless, right? Because once you store something on Arweave, because, well, it's there forever, right? You really have to make sure it's actually correct because there are huge, huge, huge potential like attack vectors um, there um, that are just really like dangerous. And for, for example, right, because you just mentioned like the, the Redstone team, right? Um, they've built, they're building this Oracle system um, and they actually have this system where you can dispute a piece of data after it got uploaded, right? And from my personal point of view, it's not um, a very elegant solution to a problem because let's say I'm uploading a financial um, data stream, euro to USD prices, and some hacker is able to corrupt the incoming stream, right? Then my application who's using the data is already using this incorrect data. And then later on, after I might have the damage, can then say, yeah, I raise a dispute, this is incorrect. Actually, there's nothing reimbursing me, actually, that, that there has been some incorrect data being uploaded because it's like from one central, right, right now at least, right, from one central provider being uploaded. And that's something we do different with Kive, where we say, listen, we are actually uploading and validating the data. And after it has been found valid, just then the Kive chain publishes the proof and says, Listen, developers, listen, apps, whatever. We know that this Arweave transaction ID has some absolute correct data that you can use in your application safely, right? So could you could you leverage Kive to build like a roll-up, for example, that like in the same way that Celestia is a data availability layer for, for roll-ups. I think the Redstone team was doing some, something kind of similar where they're leveraging Arweave as a... a sort of data availability there. Is this also what one can do with Kive? Yeah. Uh, yes, actually. So the Kive really possibilities on that side are kind of endless because I like to say what's well, Kive is a big of a, of a triangle, right? And like we're really focusing on getting Web 2, Web 3 data into Web 3, right? And then you can do whatever you want. After the data is there, you can do whatever you want. So you can use it for, for example, I just see the little region ticker um, down there, right? It's like they have a lot of, off-chain um, data they are working with and they have reached out to us and said hey guys how can we get this data on chain how can we make it turn into public good right and that's for example also a use case of kive that's way beyond just the archiving um, of data right also turning data into a public good making it accessible making data trustless so i can safely use it um, between um, chains um, then with ibc Accela, and so on i mean you can leverage tons of already trustless bridges to then get my data from from a to b yeah, so let, let's maybe talk about some of the use cases here. So I think one of the use cases that you mentioned in your blog post is um, these like archival nodes. So in Ethereum, you can have different types of nodes. One of those nodes is an archival node. It calculates all of the state transitions since the beginning of the chain. Those nodes are usually quite 
uh, long to sink and take like weeks, perhaps even like years at some point when the state becomes large enough. There are not a whole lot of people also have archival nodes, I think. Like, I think at some point it was estimated that maybe a handful of archival nodes existed. Uh, maybe even the Ethereum Foundation didn't have one uh, or something like that. But yeah, but, 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 but here with Kive, we could say, okay, well, the archival data is available on Kive. It's been, it's been proven valid. And so therefore, you know, we could maybe forego having archival nodes or this can kind of act as the, the a source of truth. And you could do that for other blockchains as well. Is that, is that kind of the value proposition here? Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. It's basically about this like data accessibility and data validity, right? Because as I said earlier, there is no incentive for someone on Ethereum to run like in ETH, of course, no incentive for ETH to run an archival node. I mean, I can sell it off to like analysts, for example, um, or projects that need to have access to archival data and I can just charge fiat revenue on it, but there's no protocol based incentive for that, right? And actually with Kive, this, this idea switches, right? Because once data has been stored with Kive, it's publicly and free um, available for everyone, right? Meaning there is no need anymore to even run your own archival because you can just get it from there. And we actually building out some super exciting tooling right now, which I think we will well, maybe release by the end of the month uh, that allows you to get your data from Kive into any source destination you want, local database, Excel sheet if you want to, right? Or uh, like your big Snowflake uh, data warehouse. And I think that's also something we are kind of like actively pushing there to then get rid of this problem of like archival nodes and even node operators, right? Can use this to sync their nodes even faster because well, they don't have to worry about how do they get their data from this or that chain really. And so can you describe the architecture, the Kive architecture? Like what yes. are the different layers here and how do you leverage the Cosmos SDK? I think that's what people are really interested in. Sure, sure. Um, so basically uh, it is actually a very easy concept if you really boil it down. So basically we work with so-called storage pools and storage pools, um, they run protocol nodes that are relaying data from A to B. So they're relaying data, for example, from, from Cosmos, right? Or from Polkadot, whatever, over to Arweave. And then, they are also validating this data. And the way it works is quite simple. Let's take Polkadot as an example. Um, I pull down block number five from Polkadot and push it onto Arweave and then tell the other nodes, hey nodes, this is my proposal of this data. Can you please check if it is correct? And then those nodes would go ahead, download this data from Arweave and maybe pull down their local copy, check if, it's, if it equals. And if it equals, it's fine. They vote with yes on this piece of data. If the majority has found yes, then the Cosmos chain picks this up and says, okay, developers, here is this uh, bundle that has been found valid, or hey, here's this bundle that has been found invalid, so please don't use it. And then, of course, we only store the valid ones, so it makes more sense, right? Um, so you can you get along uh, this, this art. That's a very fundamental process. And the incentivization behind this um, is that the storage pool requires funding. So you purchase Kive token off the market, put them in the pool as funding, and then, ah, that's amazing, perfect. And then the pool pays out um, the Kive tokens to the validators as a reward for relaying this data. Um, and then basically then the validators, well, they can have delegates, like a proof of stake system. Uh, but then basically that's the easy process, like a dripple down effect, right? The foundation might purchase Kive tokens, um, put them in a pool as funding to make sure that they create a constant archive of the data. The tokens dripple down to the validators and the validators might well, restake it for security or sell it off at the market. So it's a purely utility-driven uh, token. Mm. So, so we have funders. Who, who, who are these funders, practically speaking? Yeah. Uh, uh, usually, I would say foundations or projects that are dependent on the data. Um, easy okay. example, if I'm, for example, the graph. Uh, let's just take the graph and Solana, right? The Solana, of course, has an interest in creating the archive of Solana for, well, cost reasons on their end. And the graph is maybe interested in get, ensuring access to Solana data because they might offer a product on top of this, right? Like the subgraph for Solana. And actually now it's cheaper for both of them to just fund the pool 50-50 and effectively split the costs, right? Then if someone would pay for that, uh, would pay for that data. Um, and then of course, a lot of people actually argue, well, isn't there a free rider problem? Because if I might be a small person, I don't have to pay. I can just benefit from the big fish, you know, paying this. Um, yes, true. But on the other side, the big player will always make sure to refund the pool because they are building a very, very successful business model on top of this data, right? It's a bit like using a free version of a database 
online and then you say, well, yeah, I don't have ever have to pay for it. Well, yes, of course, because at some point you're going to scale and then you want to make sure you don't put your customers at risk, right? So you start, of course, paying the database provider for providing a database. It's the same concept there. And because then a lot of people can split the costs, it saves a lot of money for everyone. Mm. So we essentially have you know, actors who are incentivized to have this data be stored permanently. Um, the easiest, the sort of easiest go-to example here would be like a foundation or the team that is behind a project. They're incentivized for that data to be stored online. They would fund uh, this pool. That pool can also be co-funded by several entities. Um, the the staking the, those funds then go to. I guess here where I don't understand here is like what's the role of the validators? So the validators, they are the ones who are verifying the data that's coming in, signing the data, attesting that that data is correct before it gets posted to Arwe. So the delegators, yes. the validators get rewards. Who's who's paying Arwe? Yeah, so the validators are paying Arwe, right? The validators so, are paying so, so, so in a pool, we have, let's say 50 validators, for example, right? And then we have this round system. So every round, every round is one block, for example, right? So in one round, I might be the uploader. So I store the data onto Arweave and I pay with this in R, right? And then because, well, if my data has been found valid from the others, then I get reimbursed in Kaif tokens, right? Which of course, later on I can sell for the R I've paid now. Um, and then in the next round, you might be the uploader, right? And then you do the thing. And then the next one, I am the uploader again. So it switches. Um, always from, from A to B. And the probability that I'm going to be the uploader is determined on my, on my stake. So of course, I'm always right. incentivized to have a high stake because I get a much higher reward if I have um, basically stored the data um, on Arweave. And so the, stake, the staking providers, uh, the validators, they need to also take into account, like they need to also have R. They need also... Um, be liquid in R and there might also be some kind of treasury management there where they, they might be buying and selling R in order to maximize their return on, uh, on their staking rewards. So there, there's probably um, like some game game theory and economics going on here to maximize staking rewards versus exactly. like the amount of R they're spending. Exactly. So you can do this or either on the other side, Bundler um, offers um, a Kaif payment integration. So you can store your data through Bundler and then you can just pay native Kaif. So you don't have to worry about that in theory. Mm. Uh, but something else, which is a very cool use case that Kaif can do as well. Let's say you're archiving a Web2 API. I'm actually for Say Network, we have this use case with um, sports betting data. And this costs you, of course, fiat money, right? Yeah. What you do is you purchase your API key with fiat money and then you just pull it into your node and then your node uses this API key to relay the data. But then, of course, the node still gets reimbursed in Kaif tokens in order to pay for the API key. And every pool has its own parameters on operating and storage costs, right? Storage costs, depending on where they store the data, it's a factor of one and a half on top of the Arweave price. So they get a 50% profit. Um, and of course, the operating costs can be set also on a per pool basis. For example, if the API key is $100 a month, well, you can do the maths, right, to get a Kaif price that will reimburse people for that. And then through the governance, those parameters can be updated whenever. Okay. Who, who, so can you explain the process by which validators um, verify the data? So when, let, let's say we're talking about a Web2 uh, API, because I think that's like a simple example. So mm -hmm. you have an API for, I don't know, stock market uh, prices, right? Like over time. And you want to have that data be in uh, permanent storage. As a user of that data, what were the assurances that I have that the validators have come to, come to consensus around this data? Are they all signing this data collectively? And uh, what it yeah, is that, is that how it works? Yes, exactly. So to, 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 to make this short, yes. So they, they vote on it. They're not signing the data. They are voting on it with a result, either true or false, right? And the voting itself, like how you come to true or false, is completely up to the developer that is writing the implementation, right? So mm -hmm. for example, for deterministic blockchain data, the proof is very simple is, does the copy on R with equal my local, uh, my local copy? Yes, they equal. Okay, I'm going to vote with true, right? Um and then, for example, for pricing, like stock market pricing, 
there might be a little like slippage in the pricing, right? Because maybe in Frankfurt, the exchange rate is a different one than in New York. So actually in your validation function, you can just code in the slippage check and return, for example, true only if the slippage is less than 0.1%, for example. That's, I think, what um, Chainlink is doing. So it's completely yeah. up to the developers to customize this to their needs. They only have to return true or false at the end. That's the only thing that they have to do. And then, of course, the nodes, how you can make sure that the nodes vote correct is, first of all, they don't have an incentive to vote on the wrong side, like either invalid or valid, uh, because then they don't get money for that because, well, they've been wrong, right? Um, and of course, they have the stake as a security, meaning that if they voted on the incorrect side, their stake gets slashed. So they receive a, slack, a slash for voting invalid or being offline. So you can make sure that there is this economic security for proof of stake behind the data that has been uploaded. Hmm. I'm trying to think as, as a web two service, I, I think yeah. maybe like as a web three, so if you're the Ethereum foundation and you want to store the entire state of Ethereum in Kive, I think it makes sense yeah. to have a validator set that is verifying that data and posting it to the chain because the Ethereum network can't sign data. Yeah. Um, we don't have the cryptography yet for a blockchain to hold its own keys to sign data for something like, let's say, I don't know, like what one example, like a Bloomberg API or something, right. Mm -hmm. And like you're, you want to store the stock market data into the, into the chain. Yeah. I could, I could see where Bloomberg might just sign data and post it straight to Arweave. Like it, like for web two data, if you trust the signature of the issuer of the data, then you don't need Kive. You can just go straight to Arweave, right? Yes, exactly. So and I think this is now a bit of like this this question on like how much security you want to have in a system, right? Where you can say, well, I'm already trusting the Bloomberg API on Web2. So I'm just going to relay this one-to-one -one into Web3 and then I'm going to use it there, right? You have kind of two, well, it's a perfectly fine solution, first of all, right? But you have one problem with it. First of all, something on the transport could go wrong, right? which you don't know. And then how do you know later on if it's invalid? It's a bit of this redstone problem I talked about earlier, right? So like relaying the data immediately, but then later on, maybe if you already have the damage, you can say, yeah, but this was incorrect. And like, okay, cool. Like, sorry for, sorry for that. Um, but there's nothing that's going to happen. So that's one problem you... you no, but if the data is signed, if the data is signed and you have the signature over the data... Are you talking about missing pieces of data or incorrect data? Because if the data is signed, there's no there's no risk yeah. of, of this, right? No, exactly. Well, well, if if it's signed, then you just have to well check the signature on your end, right? Yeah, it's actually correct, and then you would have to well also copy the Bloomberg data down, right, in order to yeah. even create the other signature. Of course, that's that's a valid solution, but I think it gets especially interesting when talking about multiple data streams at the same time, right? Hmm. Because if you want a system to be completely trustless on some data that can be trustless, right? Like stock exchange data can be trustless if we go to multiple uh, providers of the stock exchange data. And of course, then like the Kai game comes more and more into play where you say, okay, now we have to get multiple sources and have to find consensus about this state. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, if like, if in any case where a, a sort of traditional centralized company wanted to have its data available on our weave, they they could just say, hey, here's our here's our private our public key. We're signing the data. We're going to put it here for the benefit of everyone. They might have some economic layer in there where you know, you get to pay. You have to pay for it or yeah. something. I don't know how that works, but let, let's just say let's just assume it, it yeah. wants to be the data wants to be free. Um, then if you're using that data, then you're trusting the source. You know, you assume you trust the source. Therefore, you can trust the signature. In this case, right. So let's say you had Bloomberg and maybe some other data that you wanted to aggregate. Um, in in this case, where you mentioned, say, like, yeah, you want to have you know stock market data over time, but you want to do the um, the average price across you know several exchanges or several sources of data, then that's where Kai would come in handy because you'd have the validator network that is sourcing that data, executing some sort of computation on the data um like an like an average uh of a price putting that data in uh our weave and then signing it but effectively you have a new here it's a new data set it's not like a one-to-one -one data set 
is actually a new data set. And this is where uh, Hive has like value. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And also, you have to design your runtime implementation, of course, to solve this problem. Right. On the other side, you can always argue, for example, with the Bloomberg thing is, is it even is it even in in crypto mind to just relay data, like just have a one on one copy from a web to like from a trust false, like just sounds so weird, but from a source that you would have to trust, like Bloomberg, for example, right? And then getting this data, right, into Arweave. And then do you trust Bloomberg? And then do you want to expose, especially in DeFi, right? Do you want to expose your users that are for sure thinking that your system is 100% trustless, yeah. right? We wanted to expose them to that risk. And our lead developer always likes to say, yeah, the only reason why we're making such an effort building blockchains and making everything trust is because we just expect one single person on this whole planet to fuck with, with the whole system, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really important that you then kind of like think about, okay, what are we optimizing for, right? Are we optimizing for true crypto? Then we cannot just relay data. Then we have to yeah. make it trustless. Yeah, I mean... This, this, I think like the philosophy, I agree with the philosophy uh, here where, you know, it, it, trusting single sources of data exposes you to risk, right? Like uh, in, in this case, you know, let's say that there were applications that were relying on this data and someone malicious at Bloomberg wanted to provide some faulty data that would um, cause say like i don't know cascading liquidations or something like yeah. that like i mean you, you could do that um there there might be some use cases where one would trust that data and would like be content with that with trusting that mm -hmm. data but I, I agree that like we need sort of like resilient data um that perhaps comes from multiple sources and has been aggregated and um where there are like mechanisms in place to you know fish out outliers and and, and things like that um yeah, no, this is really this is really interesting. Uh, I, I I really like this. Um, what a so who 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 decides basically like okay um, can, can yeah in terms of public goods right so coming back to this Ethereum uh, archival node idea can the community kind of come together and say like hey we're gonna fund this thing because we think it's a public good and it should be available to everyone. Like I noticed in the Kive app, I think you guys are archiving like, you know, Bitcoin and Polkadot and Moonbeam yep. and a bunch of other things. Like who's funding those things? Especially um, like Bitcoin, like who's funding this Bitcoin yeah. uh, archive? So, so, so right now, right, because it's testnet, um, it's like, I mean, we are, we are funding this, right? With the ecosystem um, wallet. Um, but actually, um, well, we have some measures in place for mainnet. It's actually that our first ever fundraise were just um, just foundations from all the blockchains with convertible nodes. So we had the Near Foundation, we had uh, Solana, we had um, all the others, right? Um, and so basically, it's like this is they have purchased this to these tokens early on to provide this funding for their communities, right? Then they kind of get the initial spark um, started, right? But of course, it's a completely permissionless system. So of course, if you have three people that have enough money and say, well, we would love to see Bitcoin being archived, they can, of course, get together and just turn it into a public good, right? Um, and uh, yeah, that's that works. So for here, for example, we had like the Bitcoin blockchain being archived. There's yeah. one person funding it. Exactly. And actually, if you turn on the little expert mode in the upper right, um, for the for the audio-only uh, listeners, we're just exploring the, the Kive webpage. Um, and now um, I think you should see the the funders if you scroll up there. Yeah, see, there's no funders tab. The second one, if you scroll up a bit, there's no yeah. fund, there's no funders tab. Exactly. Okay. And then you can see who is funding the pool right now. So it's, so it's just the Kive team wallet um, just funding that. Of course, in mainnet, we have different right things in play. And it's also a cool mechanism, in my opinion, because it's a true validation on the business model. Because if you create a runtime and no one is interested in funding this, well, then there's also apparently no value in this data being stored right now, right? So why would you do this? Yeah, and so as a as a as a validator, or as I guess as a maybe not a validator, but as a we call them a, protocol nodes, right? Okay, so as a protocol node, if th those protocol nodes also need to have 
clients for the chains they're store they're they're storing in uh in in are we through kive so if i'm you know if if we're backing up the the bitcoin blockchain there has to be some client there that is relaying that information through yes. through kive Exactly. We're calling these clients, we call them runtimes. Um, and I think if you would go back to Yapno, you would see it's like every um, pool has like their own little runtime. Of course, all EVM-based chains are all using the EVM runtime. The Bitcoin is using the Kive slash Bitcoin runtime. Ah, um, I see. Okay. Exactly. And we made this um, as easy as possible for developers. So the core of the runtime is already written by, by Kive and it just exposes two functions. One is an upload data function where you have to return some bytes. That's something a developer has to write. And the other function is the validate function. Um, and the, the default one is does A equals B, but if you have a different one, well, you can overwrite this function. And that's it. And then you publish this binary. And then the node runners have a pretty cool tool called Kaiser, which is an homage to the Cosmovisor, which makes like running um, your uh, Kaif node super easy. So you just point it to a pool and the Kaiser automatically downloads the right binaries and also Omati listens to up, uh, updates in the governance and pulls the binaries in time so you don't miss the uh, the update. Okay. Exactly. So I, I wanted to ask you about this. So uh, for listeners, so Cosmovisor is a piece of software that is run by validators and it essentially manages the binaries. Um, right. Because like as a, as a validator, you're running software on a machine and whenever there's a, an upgrade, so let's say Cosmos Hub, uh, as you know, the Cosmos Hub binary Gaia Gaia D uh, goes from version one to version two. Um, as a validator, you have to update that software, and Cosmovisor is sort of a wrapper that just allows you to put the software there, and then when the update happens, your validator automatically switches over. So it's kind of like a it's a service that runs on your on your on your validator. Um, how, how does how does this Kive Cosmovisor um, um, what is it called? Kaiser? Kaiser, exactly. How, how does that Kaiser. Yeah. Exactly. It works the exact, it's the exact same idea behind it. The only cool thing is it actually supports listening to like, multiple pools at the same time, right? Because um, actually we are rolling out uh, an update now. This is a complete alpha right now for, for I think everyone listening for you as well. We're running out, uh, we are rolling out an update called Interpool Security, where now one validator is active in multiple pools at the same time. Um, and then even, of course, Kaiser makes even more sense um, because then the binary, well, the wrapper automatically listens to all updates happening on all pools. And then you can just have all the download enabled and you're good to go and get um, and never miss an update. So okay. Very so. interesting. Very, very interesting. And so as a, as a validator, as a validator on, say, Cosmos, if you're already validating the Cosmos chain, mm -hmm. should you just start validating Kive and like get rewards for, or like is, is Kive as a validator node, are you dependent on running also a validator node on another network or is it fetching the data through IBC? Uh, yes, so so it, it is fetching the data by a foreign API endpoint, right? We're leveraging like POC network for that, Coinbase Cloud for that right now, um, Chainstack we are in contact with right now, right, for that. Um, but of course, you can plug in your own. So if you're already running, like to keep the story completely trustless, right, you're yeah. running your own RPC endpoint, RPC endpoint on Cosmos, you're going to archive Cosmos, just point it to right. your own node. Okay. That's what we want to trust. So it's just so Kive is just connecting to an RPC endpoint. Exactly. Right? So you could exactly. connect to any public RPC endpoint, or yeah. if you're running your own validator, then you'd want to connect your to your of, own public RPC endpoint. Of course, and, and you can code this connection thing however you want, right? This is just how we as a team have implemented it. If we take the example, of course, of well, storing um, the, the sp sports betting data, right? You might mm -hmm. work with one provider, and you, of course, write a function to just fetch from this one provider or from multiple. It's completely up to developers to code. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And um, so you're currently in incentivized testnet. Uh, how's that thing going? Crazy, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a TLR. It was crazy. We had, um, no, we had, I think, so the, the incentivization phase ended a few weeks ago. Um, we were like cleaning up the leaderboard and everything with 40,000 participants, which is insane. And participants really being like people that have like 
staked actively, right, claimed from the faucet and so on, and not people that have just created an address and sent some tokens, right? That's been absolutely mind-blowing um, experience from a well, growth perspective. It was a great stress test um, for the current architecture. It is running on the Corellia is the name of the test, and so that's running on the Corellia chain. I think the team learned uh, a crazy lot um, of this. And um, yeah, it was very, very valuable for us, um, I must say. The contributions we got from a tech community and meme perspective were absolutely insane, really. What, what was the biggest lesson from the incentivized testnet? Um, good question. I think we had some, well, I think a good lesson for us was that we're actually capable of running this stuff under load and what like real load on the blockchain looks like, right? And then we were really able to optimize for that. So I think we're going to do one or two, like one more big update now. And then we're actually done. Then we're like, it's going to be ready for mainnet then. I hope it stays with the one update. I'm pretty, pretty confident though, but you know, it's tech. Um, but exactly. So I'm really hoping that this kind of works out with the last update. And then I think then we're really good to go. Like, give us a great UX, UX insight to everything. So yeah, what's like beyond the storing your favorite blockchains data um, in, uh, in Arweave, what are the other applications here? Like if you're thinking more long-term and outside the box in terms of what this can be used for in the future as Web3 grows and new sorts of businesses are built um, on, on using crypto and blockchains, what are some of the things that you'd be most excited about uh, for in terms of the use of uh, Kive? Yeah, I think really that Kive will become this like critical, like, middleware in your web three stack right because it allows you to well communicate well allows you to get the in communication from web two and other centralized web three data into a completely trustless web three right and then utilizing some other tools like Accela, um like our new like oracle module and stuff like this to then do the ibc to ibc transfer of data right or of, of information with Accela, you even get the cross chain um, and stuff like this i said we're rolling out a tool by the end of the month that allows it to get it into your favorite Web2 stack. So like a whole new role for analysts there, right? And even like projects that might not work in Web3 but are interested in using Web3 data as like a no-code solution. It's one button and they have it in their favorite warehouse. Accounting is a very big piece where we see a big use case happening, right? That's a big thesis of mine. Now the bull market is over. Everyone's going to look back at compliance and accounting and they obviously need archival history, right, or history access to data. That's something I'm very bullish on. I think that's kind of the, the way we go and kind of like, yeah, increasing our market share um, there. Hmm. What's the roadmap? Like, uh, where, where, when are you launching mainnet and when can, uh, yeah. when can we start building on, on, on this? Well, a ASAP, I, I hope so. Um, no, so we were planning to launch the, um, the mainnet in this quarter. Um, we're just going through like the last stuff. We have one audit in place and stuff like this. And we hope that there's no major delay in that. We're really looking forward to kind of like getting it out um, by the end of this year. Um, and um, I think then we're ready to go from a tech side. It's already tested. The validation works, of course, from a mathematical point of view. There is no economic security behind it because we don't have a token. Uh, but that's like the big next thing on the roadmap, getting the mainnet out. And after that, it's a lot of, well, community and ecosystem building, um, I would say, right? Like, use cases, pushing for use cases, granting out, um, tooling around it, um, and so on and so on. And the, the road to decentralization after many of ideas. <laughs> Wait, you said you don't have a token. There is a Kive token, right? Yeah, but it's not trading yet. That's what Ah, I'm okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Okay. So in tested, of course, you can play around with it, but it's not trading. Okay. Interesting. Uh, where can people learn more about Kive? And I mean, what is, what is your biggest ask to the community right now? Like, what do you need people to do, basically? Um, it would be a way more like, you know, finding use case, like not finding use case, but building out use cases on the tech side. I think this runtime development is a, is a big thing. Um, we will, yeah, as I said, push a new update there very soon. Um, and then, of course, it's a burden on us, like, right, to create some better documentation around this, right, and get people um, on board. Um, if you want to learn more about Kive, like the docs are a good place to start. Um, and then from there to the Discord, we have a very, very active Discord where you can ask yeah, a lot of questions and they usually always get answered. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say that's from there. If you just want to check out some news, Twitter is a good place. I think we're tweeting around every day, every other day, maybe. Um, it's always some, some very insightful content we are, we're putting out there. Cool. Uh, well, this is really exciting. I'm, I'm, uh, 
I'm hopeful to seeing, uh, yeah, all kinds of new applications being built on this. And I mean, I think for me, the thing that uh, feels cool about this is that it is, you know, a practical use case for our weave. Um, not that there aren't any use cases on our weave, but I think it's a use case that makes sense in the broader Web3 context and, you know, could be... Uh, a really good uh, sort of like long-term incentive for our weave to to stay up and to remain permanent uh, as it claims to be, <laughs> as it claims to do uh, yeah thanks uh thanks so much fabian for coming on look forward to thank you so much for really enjoy it <laughs> thank you